All right, we are back. We're hoping to hear before this hour is out from some old pals. Maybe we will, maybe we won't. It's how it is in radio. But you know, this can surely be that uh, monthly show we do where we just have to catch up. It's almost stick and move. We usually do uh, listener mail in segment one, but there's a there's a, an email I got uh, last month that I just keep meaning to get to and forgetting, so let's do it now. We talked last June to author Larry Tai about his wonderful book on Satchel Page, an interview we enjoyed and which got re-aired on Capital Public Radio the next day. In response to that, we got the following letter, letter from Steve out in Minneapolis, which said, Greetings, Doug. I want to share my Satchel Page story with you. It was maybe 1957 when I was nine years old. My dad took me and a brother to a Minneapolis Millers-Denver's Bears game which I'm imagining was AAA minor league, my first trip to the old, then-new, Metropolitan Stadium. Before the game began, there was a pitching exhibition by Satchel Page. What I remember of it is that it ended with Satchel on the mound throwing two balls at once to two catchers at home plate. Throw after throw, hitting both mitts right on target. Which for me doesn't, it doesn't seem possible. How could you put two balls and throw it into two separate catcher's mitts? But then Steve closed with, Then, for his last pitch, a third catcher was brought out to home plate, and he threw three balls at once right on target. We know Steve to be a reliable observer, based on his past correspondence. So we have to accept this, but how in God's name is that possible? Please, if any of anyone else out there has any great Satchel Page stories, uh, please, please share them. And I, I am reminded of the fact that when we did do that talk, we omitted what Page is maybe most famous for, which was his six rules of living. They're also, they're also sometimes listed as Satchel Page's six secrets of life, which are, in no particular order, avoid fried meats, which angry up the blood. Also, Keep the juices flowing by jangling around gently when you move. And avoid running at all times. And who could forget, go very lightly on the social vices, such as carrying on in society. The social ramble ain't restful. My personal favorite, if your stomach disputes with you, lie down and pacify it with cool thoughts. And of course, the most famous of all, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. Now, according to Larry Ty's book, Satchel said things similar to that, but it was a sports writer that put them all together for him. Whether Satchel Page actually said it or not didn't matter. Afterwards, he always said he did. And regardless of the, uh, the exact details, I'm sure our own Dr. Andy Jones, the host of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, would agree that that's some pretty fine writing, even if it ain't exactly a poem. Now, we are restricted by the fact that, of course, we are radio and not television and cannot show you pictures. So we're going to have to refer you to the web for the fresco detail, which we may have mentioned in a previous show, uh, of a portrait, The Crucifixion of St. Peter, done by Michelangelo, wherein uh, art scholars have looked and noticed that there appears to be a tiny self-portrait of the artist in the painting. The fresco was reportedly... uh, created in the Vatican's Pauline Chapel sometime between 1545 and 1550. Uh, Art historians have puzzled over the identity of a mysterious figure in the upper left-hand corner. 
And after comparing this image with other depictions of Michelangelo, including his only other apparent self-portrait, scholars have determined that it is indeed the master himself. The clincher, it's thought, is the blue turban the character is wearing, which was typically worn by Renaissance sculptors as protection against dust. According to the Vatican's head of paintings restorations, Mauricio De Luca, the finding was extraordinary and moving. And if you've noticed, you know, Rush Limbaugh never talks about this kind of stuff. Apparently, when, when he visited the Vatican and someone showed him the Pieta, he said, Oh, Pieta? I thought you said Pinata. Ah, I'm making that up. That's not true. Since we're talking about art in the broad sense, we would like to remind you of the fact that uh, it was 70 years ago this month that MGM's The Wizard of Oz premiered in Wisconsin, California, and New York. It is, by any standards, one of the great movies ever made. Although I tempted to say, don't you wish someone would <laughs> try and one-up The Wizard of Oz, but then I think, oh, bite your tongue. Because when Hollywood tries to do remakes, it generally drops the ball. Steven Schlemielberg, for example, announced this week he's going to remake Harvey, the much-beloved Jimmy Stewart vehicle. Only Spielberg has the idea that he wants to actually show Harvey to the audience. Which, which Steven, was kind of the whole point of the original. You know, you know as far as I'm concerned, that whole idea is just crazy. Speaking of idiot remakes, how about this bright idea from Hollywood? Some folks down there are planning to take Errol Flynn's classic 1935 film, Captain Blood, and remake it. And we've said in this program before, we're a big fan of movies dating back to the 1930s. And if you haven't seen Captain Blood, well, you damn well ought to. It might be the classic pirate film, even ahead of Treasure Island, was released after Christmas Day in 1935 and captured the imagination of Americans. Uh, leading man Errol Flynn was an instant star as a result. The film was nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director for Michael, Michael Curtis, who would later win the trophy for Casablanca. So anyway, you've got this much-beloved classic picture that you think, you know, maybe you don't want to mess with to make a remake, but, but no, no, they're going to take a whack at it, only it's not, going to be, it's not going to be set in the Caribbean on pirate ships. No, the remake of Captain Blood is going to be set in outer space. In fact, we love the comment from the wonderful website snarkarati.com. A headline from the article by Kirsten Anderson says it all. Captain Blood remake set, period. Sigh. The article notes, Captain Blood marked the first of several films in which Errol Flynn was successfully paired with Olivia de Havilland as his love interest, with Basil Rathbone starring as the bad guy pirate. Adding Flynn was a solid enough actor who could do better than many thought when pushed, but his skill was often overlooked because of his overwhelming charm and good looks. The best part about Errol Flynn is he always had a good time on screen, and as a hard-drinking partier, off-screen as well. An Errol Flynn movie always meant one thing, fun. So to remake it in space, we have the following quote from Warner Brothers producer Bill Gerber explaining how he was sold on the idea. Quote, At first I felt like I was in that scene in The Player where Buck Henry pitches the sequel to The Graduate. Then I took a look at their, anim their animaic depiction of a pirate battle in space and it had such a distinctive visual look to it that I said, great, I get it. 
Well, anyway, I guess it's only a matter of time before some jackass remakes Casablanca only sets it in Hanoi during the Vietnam era. Speaking of wartime dramas, in this case, Cold War time dramas, interesting uh, history section of New Scientist magazine, July 11th issue, talking about how it was 20 years ago this year that the Berlin Wall came down. Uh, the essay in the magazine examined uh, the roots of what brought the wall down and noted that although uh, Ronald Reagan or Mikhail Gorbachev get a lot of credit for it, the writer Fred Pierce makes a case for someone you've never heard of being instrumental in it, Janos Varga, whose campaign to halt a dam on the Danube River brought Hungarian hardliners to their knees. And then when reformers took over in Budapest, their first act was to cancel the dam, and their second act was to open the border with Austria. As thousands of Hungarians and then East Germans flooded through, the game was up for communism. Pretty penetrating uh, analysis, I think, and probably has a lot of merit. Check it out yourself in the magazine. I do note that, uh, that a former girlfriend was formerly East German and tried to sneak through that uh, Hungarian border into Austria, got caught, spent time in a Hungarian women's prison, got sent back to East Germany, and was ransomed out by Amnesty International. She was a pretty lucky gal. She wound up winning a small lottery in, uh, in, in West Germany and, having enough, and then had enough money to travel. I met her in Guatemala. And I don't know whatever happened to Sabina, but if anybody's listening in, uh, in, Ber in Berlin right now, and you know a red-haired doctor who likes to play the tambourine in, uh, in late-night bands and nightclubs in Berlin, hey, have her send us an email. And speaking of nightclubs and Germany, how about this item? German researchers found that men whose dancing was rated by women as skillful and sexy, think John Travolta or Patrick Swayze in their primes, were generally physically stronger and more dominant than those who couldn't dance, making them more likely to produce healthy offspring. According to anthropologist Bernhard Fink, skillful, self-assured male dancers had other pronounced masculine traits, indicating they'd been exposed to more testosterone in the womb. I think that's a stretch. Fink told new scientists that women assess how men move and dance. They use it as a means of weighing their strength and dominance, traits which eventually signal status. Looking at the article, apparently Fink was measuring testosterone levels in the womb as indicated by the relative lengths of their index and ring fingers. Hmm, why not the bumps on their head? Well, not sure what to make of the study, but I do know what music that it requires us to now play. Speaking of those great uh, cinematic hoofers, it's inspiring to note that Patrick Swayze, despite a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, continues to work, actually. He's already beaten the odds and continues to beat them every day, and we, we wish him well. Another dancer we just talked about, uh, I was surprised to learn, John Travolta, is threatening to leave the Church of Scientology after 34 years. Travolta, age 55, is apparently racked with guilt and anger because he didn't seek conventional medical treatment for his son, Jet, who died last January after seizures. Apparently, the family relied instead upon treatments approved by Scientology. Reportedly, Travolta is upset that his religion was not able to help his son more. It's led him to question his faith. 
Friends have noted, however, that Travolta might be afraid to leave the religion, which does keep files on members' personal lives, and very definitely does not take kindly to defectors. I've known a few Scientologists, and the ones I've known are not the sort of folks that would, uh, would abstain from conventional medical treatments. Something I tend to associate more with fundamentalist Christian churches, and in fact, in Wausau, Wisconsin, a man was accused of killing his daughter by praying instead of seeking life-saving medical attention, and he told people that he considered that her illness was a, a test of his faith. The man, Dale Newman, is a full gospel Christian who did not know that his 11-year-old daughter had diabetes, according to his defense attorney, who added there's not a shred of evidence, knew that his prayers would fail to help his daughter or cause her death. I think that one's worth repeating. The lawyer must have looked himself in the mirror that morning and, you know, did the mirror test if he can keep a straight face before offering the line of reasoning that there's not a shred of evidence that he knew that his prayers would fail to help his daughter or cause her death. Is there any evidence that he could be certain that his prayers would help his daughter? Because according to reports, she had deteriorating health, was too weak to eat, speak, drink, or walk. Instead of seeking medical help, he prayed. You know, I suppose there's a time for prayer in life, but there's also a time to go to the ER. All right, from the further, further item from the religious nut file. Dateline, Texarkana, Texas. Apparently, Tony Alamo, one-time street preacher who built a multi-million dollar ministry and became an outfitter of the stars, was convicted a couple weeks back for taking girls as young as nine across state lines for sex. Tony Alamo, whose real name was Bernie Lazar Hoffman, was convicted of sex with underage girls and could get 175 years. Apparently five women testified, or now aged between 17 and 33, that Alamo married them in private ceremonies while they were minors, giving each of them wedding rings. Defense lawyers had argued the government targeted Alamo because it didn't like his apocalyptic brand of Christianity. Alamo had previously blamed the Vatican for his legal troubles, which included a four-year prison term for tax evasion in the 1990s. We can't say that we wish evangelist Tony Alamo a nice transition as he goes to the slammer. A different sort of transition was made uh, on July 28th by Reverend Ike, who evidently made his transition off this mortal earth into the world beyond. If there is an afterlife, I'm sure he's burning in hell now. Reverend Ike is someone I've had some passing familiarity with. Real name, Frederick J. Eichenrotter II. Born in 1935 of African-American and Dutch-Indonesian descent. He built a radio ministry back in the 1970s, and at his peak, his sermons were carried by hundreds of stations across the U.S. He was definitely a colorful character. His most famous slogan was, You can't lose with the stuff I use. Although I much prefer his other famous quote, which was that lack of money is the root of all evil. I had a family member that used to get uh, mail from Reverend Ike. He certainly had some inspired marketing schemes. One I remember was a pipe cleaner bent, in, bent into the shape of a shepherd's crook, which he would send out alternating with things like prayer towels, which were small strips of cloth. But he would send out a letter that would instruct the person to take the prayer wand, or whatever it was, hold it in their left hand, go over to the sink, and at 5.03, drink two glasses of water, and then say the following prayer, which we would then list. If you did this according to the Reverend Ike, 
money would come your way. And all, all sorts of other God's blessing, thanks to the fact that the Reverend was, was going to put a good word in for you with the man upstairs. For a man of the cloth, he certainly didn't seem to have an inordinate interest in monetary riches. Preaching to 5, 000, up to 5,000 people in his uh, headquarters, he would say things like, Close your eyes and see green. Adding money up to your armpits, a room full of money, and there you are just tossing around in it like in a swimming pool. He called his religious philosophy variously prosperity now, positive self-image psychology, or just plain thinkonomics. One obituary noted that at the height of his success in the 1970s, he was on television reaching 2.5 million people. Anyway, uh, we need to take a short break, so why don't we just salute Reverend Ike and go out with appropriate music. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Oh, and by the way, the title of this track, Hell by the Squirrel Nut Zippers. I mean about future calamity I used to think the idea was obsolete Until I heard the old man dampen his feet 